let's do this, Tony. Let's do it. This is another exciting episode because we have a guest. This person is someone who I've known for probably over 10 years now. And we we met at Carlton. She started as my attendant and quickly became my friend. And our friendship has been amazing ever since and probably got better after we stopped being client and attendant. Without getting too crazy, let me introduce our guest, Justine Skirtis. Thank you for the introduction, Tony. Thanks for having me. And, and, and hello to you too, Jamie. <laughs> Hi, Justine. Um, Tony, may I ask a question? Yeah. Why did the friendship change for the better after Justine was no longer your attendant? That's a good question. I think, you know, when you're, when you're a friend and an attendant, Justine, you can speak to this too, but like, I think you're always still, you kind of know that you're kind of breaking the rules. Like there's always kind of this, you're not supposed to be friends. You're supposed to just like wipe my butt and get out. When you're friends and then you're not an attendant client, then you can just be friends, right? Did you feel, okay, for, let's back up a bit. You were an attendant at Carlton and that's yes. how we met. Mm-hmm. So you met me as a client. I do this to a lot of people, but I give bad first impressions. And I think you're no exception. Well, yeah, when I got when I got over the initial, oh my God, I think he hates me. Then yeah, it was really easy to be your friend. Justine, why did it seem like he hated you? Well, when I met Tony, I was still pretty new as an attendant. So the first call that I had with him, um, it didn't go well. I was a mess. So like the transfer was really shaky. Tony, you know how Tony is. Tony was really funny about it and you know like oh there goes my head oh there goes my arm oh I might be falling out of the sling here and then he's almost falling off the bed and I didn't know he had that kind of sense of humor I was like oh my god he thinks I'm the worst attendant ever but I don't know it's just it's as an attendant you just get the feel for the type of relationship that you're going to have with the clients and I don't know I think with Tony was probably one of the ones that just it came very naturally like after we got over that initial awkward like, yeah, I have to do professional care and try to, you know, keep it clean, I guess. I don't know. And then I don't know, it's just really easy. Whereas some people, they just, you got to get the sense that they don't really want to know anything about your life. They just kind of want you to come and do the work and leave, which is fine too. But Tony, when you were saying that, like, we were kind of breaking the rules and it was easier to be friends with me after the tenant, I thought it was because you were sick of me poisoning you. Poisoning me? Yeah, like the salt incident or you choking on popcorn so many times. Yeah, you did try to kill me a few times. Uh, I, I, To be honest, I don't even remember. See, this is a thing that I do with a lot of people, especially attendants, because I'm very, like, reserved. And at, at the beginning, I'm the same as you. Like, I don't know if I should be perfectly professional and just, okay, this is what I need. Thank you for coming by. Because uh, it, it really depends on the dynamic you end up having with the person. But at the beginning, it's always hard to, to navigate that. So I think I always err on the side of just be professional and just keep it to business. And so people think that I hate them. You're not the only person that has thought that, but you bring it up a lot. And I don't even remember that first story. I just remember thinking like, oh, this is like a person who I think is cool. And I'll probably be able to be her friend. Oh, so you knew in like the first meeting that we were going to be friends. Well, I just knew, I didn't know we were going to be friends, but I knew that you were a cool person and that you were probably somebody that I would be able to relate to. 
So Tony, when you onboard a new attendant, are you like, you start out like Gordon Ramsay toward them and then like uh, progressively uh, move on to like Jason Siegel or something? No, I don't know. Well, also, I'm always afraid that if I am too nice out of the gate or too uh, accommodating, I guess, maybe if it's the wrong attendant, they'll start to take advantage of that and be like, hey, sorry, I know you were supposed to get up at eight for class, but I slept in and it's 1230. And like that happens sometimes with some attendants. So I was always like, if I keep it professional, then they won't take, they won't go across those lines. Justine, like, because you're a very friendly person, you're very good at like connecting with people. And I think part of that comes from being an attendant. It's almost like customer service in a way, because you're dealing with people at all times of the day and all aspects of their life. And so you do have to find ways to connect with them and to kind of be a person. So do you find that you were able easily to become friends with your clients? I would say, yeah, it's, it was easy to build a rapport once you kind of got a sense of like what they're looking for. Like I found it to be a little bit easier on them and put them at ease if I was a little bit more sociable, especially when you're doing private care for people. Cause you know, when you look at it from the point of view of like trying to train someone new where they're just coming in and they want to do such a good job and they're just trying to do the work and they're not really engaging with the people while they're naked and exposed. Like I found that it just, it makes people nervous when you're just kind of staring at them, not really talking to them or just fine. Like you're, they're not trying to make the client embarrassed. So I always found that it, it was easier on me. And I always got the sense from the client that it was easier on them. If I was trying to be a little bit more friendly and engaging with them, you know, asking them about class or TV shows that they were into, or just a common interest that I knew we both had. It's interesting that the idea that too much professionalism can actually be uncomfortable because like in order to be able to deliver certain kinds of care, you do have to have a, a, a proximity or a closeness and you, that takes time to establish. Yeah, it's a very intimate job, right? And you're well, like how many times, Justine, did you meet a person for the first time while they were like in the shower or completely naked or like, you know, just in a super vulnerable part of their life? Yeah, that was always a challenge for me. Not that I, I couldn't do it and I couldn't make it comfortable for them, but I disagreed with how attendant services was run in that way. Like I would have much preferred to meet them like, you know, just as a meet and greet kind of thing, just to kind of come in and say, you know, who I am, you know, what I'm about kind of thing. And then even the training of new people, like I was constantly bringing people in while they were in bed and not aware that I was bringing someone else in or having to, you know, get them off the toilet with a new person there. But you learn ways around it. Like I would always like come in quickly and just say, hey, I do have another person. It's totally up to you if you want me to tell them to wait and I'll help you. And then you can meet them after. Or if you're comfortable with it, I'll bring them in and we'll die right in kind of situation. But yeah, I agree. Like sometimes it's like certain people are really okay with it. They're very open with their disability and are totally hands-on. Like sure, bring them in. Let's teach them how to, how to get this done versus some people are very private and don't want that kind of uh, like first introduction. I would prefer that. I, I think that's a great idea because I think like the number of times I've met someone and it's like, okay, this is Anthony and this is how you help him pee. And it's like, okay, well, we're going straight to the unzipping, eh? <laughs> but that's why I prefer when I meet someone 
it's at my dinner call, even though I'm still going to pee at my dinner call. So they'll still get to see the full package. You know, at least most of the time, I'm just like making dinner and like you can chat and get to know them a bit, get to know what they're all about versus like in the morning. First of all, as we all well know by now, I hate mornings. So I do not really talk. I'm not really good at like connecting with a new person. Plus, it's like my morning routine is very involved. There's a lot of steps. I, I go to the bathroom, I shower, I have machines that I have to use. Like, it's basically trial by fire. So there's no, there's not really any time to start talking about like, what do you do for fun? You know, because I'm, I'm just trying to like get done so I can get to work. But it's also, there's so many steps that they have to remember and I have to talk them through. I can't take the time to try to be, like try to get to know them, which is unfortunate. But I think because Justine, when we met, as you remember, I don't really remember, but things were like going astray and my head was falling off or whatever. That probably helped because we're like, oh, okay, well, if we can get through these kinds of nonsense things together, then we'll probably be fine. As opposed to like, if everything went super smoothly, it, it would have just been like another call and you wouldn't have got to see like how our, pers- how our personalities really interact in those other moments. Yeah, you see a truer picture of people uh, under pressure or when they're having to problem solve rather than like in a more polite context where they can put on a different face. Yeah. But that that whole dynamic for me, like I never got too much attendant assistance like in the wash in the washroom or like with personal hygiene. Brag. So the whole idea for me of there being a trainee like hovering around, like taking notes while you're on the toilet. And this is the first time that you're meeting them. Like it just completely blows my mind. Like it it would be impossible for me to adjust to, or it would take forever. That's the thing is even like, you're both uh, different. Like I still remember when I first met you, Jamie, it was a laundry call. And of course I was late (laughs) to get to you because I was coming from a call. So I was already not making a good impression when I met Jamie too. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I just had to finish it. You were cool about it though. He's like, no, it's all good. It's all good. I've been waiting that long. And that must've been all the way back in like 2008. I can't believe you remember stuff like that. That's crazy. Yeah. Whereas Tony, like I didn't get that luxury. Like uh, they sent me to his room and of course it was a washroom call. And I was just like, oh, like, hey, I think it was like shortly after you got there, Tony, too. And I was just like, hey, well, welcome to Carlton. And I am just going to be your attendant for today. So I guess let's do this. So I knew that we were going to be friends pretty early on. Did you know before or after you poisoned me with the tequila and the salt? Well, clearly after, because I don't just pour salt and tequila down my client's throats without being friends with them first. I don't know. I think I knew probably, I knew pretty early. Well, the first call after, like, I got over the initial like fear. I was like, oh my God, he hates me. But you're so funny at the same time. It was hard to not be mad. I wouldn't say mad at you, but like not feel awkward. Cause as I'm like doing a terrible job, you're still like cracking jokes being like, wow, you're, you're pretty new at this. Eh? Like, you know what you're doing? <laughs> did you go to school for this? Or I used the, it's your first day joke a lot. Yeah, you did. Like if an attendant like forget something, even if they've been working here like eight years, I'm like, oh, it's your first day. Don't worry about it. Yeah, but like, I don't know, I knew pretty early and then like, it just became really easy after that to like, go to your calls. Like after a while, it didn't even become work, which is why as you remember, your wake ups were like the best times ever. 
and I would try to be creative with how I woke you up. Jay, I don't know if you, Tony, told you, you now I used to wake him up in the mornings. I used to go into his room and because he was such a deep sleeper, he wouldn't hear <laughs> me come in. And if he left like the, the equipment out for me, um, I could play his speakers. So I would turn on different types of music to wake him up in the morning. Oh, that's so nice. We've been talking about how the, 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 the attendants at Metcalf are really rude about how they wake him. And, it, and, and like, I, I just can't understand why they don't respect that he's a deep sleeper. So, yeah, that, that, that sounds awesome. It, it is pretty awesome. But after a while, I'd play like really obnoxious music. That I know he hated just to like yeah. mess with him a little bit. Do you, do you remember an example track? I used to play Backstreet Boys for him. And then he'd be like, oh, my God. It's like, <laughs> what? I thought you would like it. You thought I wanted it that way? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you, as you said, you, you took it from his music collection. So he clearly likes Backstreet Boys. Well, no, it was from my music. Like he had it, probably <laughs> a big mistake on his part. He set up my phone to connect to his music so I could listen to music. Right, right, While right. I was like waiting for him or whatever. Yeah. So I would download really obnoxious music and then I would go in, which is why Tony's wake up is a little bit longer because there's so many steps, but I would always volunteer to do it. Just because I'd be like, I got this. Let me handle it. Because she prepared the playlist the night before. Yeah. Okay. The next time you wake up, Anthony, uh, Justine, in some hypothetical universe where that situation could occur, (laughs) can you please wake him up with the song, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life? I don't even do this. Jamie tried to get me to listen to this song thinking like, you're going to love this song. It's honestly (laughs) the worst song I've ever heard. We're going to have to start like a survey. To see if people are on my side or if they're wrong. It's a fucking banger, man. You're crazy. <laughs> but yeah, so you you made the wake up routine go much so much better because of that. Because you were able to come in and like it wasn't it felt like we were almost just like hanging out at the same time you were helping me get up, which is rare. It does still happen here at Metcalf. Like, I don't wanna color it like everyone here is just that it's it's just like people come in here to get the job done a lot more than they did like with Justine for example when you came in you knew like pretty quickly that you were trying to make it not an unpleasant experience for me you were like you wanted us to both enjoy it because it's also I'm sure better for you if I'm not if I'm like engaged you know well I would say that like you just have to accept that some people don't want to be your friend and don't want to talk to you. So it doesn't really matter. Do the calls go by faster for those people that just want me to come in and do the job, which is fine. I think that we need, we need to discuss that you and I, like we have a very special relationship. I like to see, like, I don't, I didn't have that relationship with like anyone else really. Like I have friends. Yes. But like you and I, we just, it's just different. It just, it flowed so much easier. Like, I can talk to you for hours and not even feel like we're even really talking. Yeah. Really. And same thing with your care. Like I don't even, I'm doing it, but I think that's more just muscle memory of me, like going through the steps of doing the transfer, you know, getting you up, showering you, you know, washing everything. Like it's, I don't really feel like I'm really even focusing on doing the care. It's more just muscle memory. And you and I are just chilling, talking about whatever that we're talking about that day. Yeah. So when you think of Tony, the first thing that comes to mind is friend, not client. Yeah, like I don't like even when we go out now, like I offer to help. It depends on if Tony's being a little bitch that day and doesn't want, to <laughs> want my help that day. But uh, no, like I don't really, I don't even really notice it really anymore. What's an example of Tony being a little bitch? 
Oh, here we go. Well, like if we're like when he comes over to my place, for example, and I get it, there's other people there and he doesn't want to seem like, you know, a bother or anything, but like, it's just, I don't mind helping. Like, I think that's the the problem is, is that to a lot of people, they don't want you, especially like if I'm not working that day and I'm off duty, I've noticed with a lot of my friends that need a little help is that they don't want me to help because they feel bad. Yeah. They don't want to call attention to their needs. Yeah. And I get that, but that's the thing though, is that I don't mind and I don't even really notice it really anymore. So if we go out to a patio, like I don't even really notice that I'm like picking up the drink and like giving it to him. Like it just, it's a natural reaction. Yeah. You don't let him refuse your care. That's cool. Yeah. And that's why I tell I call him out for it. I was like, we're at a patio. It's not acceptable for you not to have a drink. <laughs> Stop being a bitch. And I've gotten good at that. The smaller stuff like drinks and stuff. But if I'm like at your house and you're hosting a dinner party, which by the way, you are such a good dinner host. Uh, so like I always want to eat all the food, but I also take eight years to eat any food. So what? So I never want to like sit there and, you know, it, it's it's hard. I have a hard time asking for help and that's obviously something I have to get better at, but. But that means the people at the table with you get to hang out with you for eight years, which is pretty fucking chill. <laughs> you know what, though? It is true. Like, how many times did we manage to watch an entire movie in the span of your dinner call? Because you genuinely take that long to eat dinner. Because I'm only a quarter of the way done. <laughs> that's the thing, though, is that's why I was always the best doing your dinner calls. And now I totally understand why people would offer to do your dinner because then they were uninterrupted to play video games for... But no, I don't mind helping. What kind of gets me annoyed is the people that take advantage of your friendship and they're not shy about like asking. Yeah, the, like the very opposite. Yeah, like people like, hey, do you want to come over and see my new place? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. We can set up a time. And then they're like, yeah, great. Good. So you can help me like unpack and set up my furniture and uh, basically help me move in. <laughs> And it's not even like they're asking me. It's like, oh, you're going to come over, see my place, and I'm going to need you to do this, 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 and this. I'm like, I would have said yes if you asked me. You didn't have to, like, trap me with, you know, basically saying, hey, let's just hang out and we'll go, like, see my new place or whatever. And maybe go hit up the patio. It's like, oh, no, you're coming over just to move my stuff. And Tony, we have a term for that. Do you want to clarify for our listeners? Friend tending. Friend tending is when you use your friend as an attendant. And... That's the exact thing that that fear is what stops me from asking for help. Because although I, I know I don't do it, and I know you'll say, yeah, yeah you, you don't do that. But that's exactly what I'm afraid of being. So that's why. I yeah, but there's a difference, though. Like, you and I are friends. Like, we have rapport and all that. And you don't ask me all the time. It's not every time I come over to see you, it's not do this for me. Yeah. Whereas it's once in a while. I'm talking about people that they have they have no interest in what goes on in my day-to-day life. They don't want to get to know me. They don't want to, you know, do something together, the two of us, yeah. to bond over. It's not like, let's go do something. And yes, while we're out, I'm probably going to have to do a bit of attendant work. Right. It's, uh, no, I just want you to come over and put my furniture together. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to get to know you. I just want you to come over and do my stuff for me. Sometimes I think... Like, like when like wheelies do that, I think sometimes it's like learned behavior that they don't mm-hmm. realize they're doing it. It's like a dynamic they end up encountering with a lot of other disabled people by virtue of their like upbringing. But I don't know how you address that. It's hard to confront, I would think. 
Well, it is hard to confront because in their mind, they see it as a friendship. Like I've totally experienced it where like I worked with this, uh, this, this one girl, like not a part of attendance services where I was going into a place and I was doing care and it's just, there was stuff that clearly needed to be done in her house. And I would ask her like, why is your other attendants not helping you with this? And she had no problem. She didn't want to like bother them, but she had no problem asking me to go above and beyond, which I don't mind doing, but it just, it was clearly not really a friendship, but in her mind it was, it was, I need you to help me with X, Y, Z and so on, because I don't want to bother the other people. And probably what that was like to some degree is trust. Yeah. Like I would sometimes have that too. Cause like, you know, I, I go through periods at Carlton where I was like really obsessed with school or it was exam times. And I had neglected other facets of my life. Like my living space would be like really messy. And then I'd grow super self-conscious and there was like a grapevine at Carlton. So I'd feel, I'd feel awkward sometimes about asking for particular kinds of help. And so I would wait for an attendant that I liked or that I knew understood me and how I lived and my ebbs and flow. And like, I would, I would have them come over and help me out. And I'm sure sometimes I exploited that to some degree and I hope I've grown out of it or whatever, but it's definitely a thing that happens. Well, it's hard to navigate that balance between, because when you need help, right, you can't, you can't be independent when you're disabled. Everyone strives for that, but like you ultimately cannot be independent. Yeah. So there has to be some level of dependence and interdependence. But when you're constantly just using your able-bodied friends in a transactional way, then you're, you're using them for their body. There has to be mutual empathy between attendant and client. I think like even if there was a particular day in which you were monopolizing Justine's time to get help with something, she would probably be more than game because she knows that you, I don't know, understand her and care about her and that you, you wouldn't leave her high and dry if the shoe was on the other foot. Yeah. And so it's basically trust. And that's something that you work very hard at establishing with people you care about. So I don't think they would ever accuse you of friend tending, even if the scale was leaning in that direction in, in one particular instance. If anything, honestly, a lot of my friends get annoyed that like Justine said, like that one, I don't ask for help. Because they're just like, we know you want a drink right now. Just ask for a drink. Yeah, but that's way less annoying than like exploiting and being a douche. <laughs> You're not exploiting. I just, I can't even explain it. You just, I don't know, maybe it's just being an attendant for so long. It's just, the, it's just so obvious. Like you can just tell, like, you're not that person. I know you think you are, but you're not. And well, even when we've been to the banquets and stuff, like, and, you know, I run into people that I know through attendance services or whatever. And it's not even like, Hey, how are you? It's like, can you get this for me since you're up? Yeah. Oh, an attendant. Hi, nice to see you too. Yeah. Aw. Because they see me and they assume I'm there as Tony's attendant, which yes, I kind of am, but I'm, you know, I'm more than that. I'm not there as his attendant. Like I'm there as his friend and we're like, you know, just hanging out. You know what? I think it's because to- Tony that they're just jealous. They're jealous <laughs> of all the, the good times that we have. Well, do you want to talk about this poisoning incident? Because I feel like you should probably come clean. Sure. Is that, is that the story? Is that, I got lots of stories, but yeah, I can tell. So (laughs) one night when I was off duty and Tony and I decided that we were going to, this is before, like, I should probably speculate, 
that this is before like they nailed down all the like the hard rules at attendance services that you weren't allowed to drink with your clients off duty. So this was before where it was allowed as long as you were off duty. So anyway, I was off duty. Wait, isn't it outrageous that healthcare provider like agencies tell the attendants what you can and can't do with the clients off duty? What? Yeah, I know. It should be my own time. Like, yes, I'm technically on campus. This is your home. Like, either we're in your dorm. Like, that's technically your home. So, like, we should be able to do in your home what we could do in my home. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you've liked a button and been paid for it, you can no longer hang out with them after duty. But I think that, well, I think that the reason that they were making that rule is because it would be tempting. Like, say, like, you and I are having drinks at your place and the equipment is all there for me to help you. And I go ahead and do it. And then something happens and then it becomes a whole ordeal. Oh, like they're afraid that you would drink with me and then put me to bed and like drop me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm sure, I don't know if you remember, but like there is a person that comes to mind that you and I would be drinking with and he would get really intoxicated and then he'd want me to help him. And I had to basically put my foot down and say, I can't help you. I'm off duty. And it would be irresponsible of me to help you because I've been drinking. And also you're kind of intoxicated. Like I have to tell you, no, I can't put you to bed either as an attendant on duty or as a person off duty. Like, but they should just like give you those boundaries and make sure that like they give you the tools and the language or whatever to enforce them. But to just say, don't hang out with them at all. Yeah, you know, but you know, like you've met lots of attendants at attendance yeah. services that are not, that they don't want to. Like, it's a hard situation to be put it in, is. you know, as an attendant when I'm on duty where I have to tell, and I have had people swear at me and call me names because they, they want to go to bed and they're clearly intoxicated. And I had one gentleman or a student who he came home drunk from Ollie's. He's soaked in alcohol from head to toe. His, he's not even able to wheel his chair through the doorway. He's hitting the wall. He's like, I want to go to bed. I'm like, I can't put you to bed right now. Well, why not? You're my attendant. I have to, you have to do what I tell you. And I said, true, <laughs> but it is client directed care, but you are not capable of making your own decisions at this point. You can't even walk and drive in a straight line at this point. And they yeah. called me a bitch and told me, called me every name in the book. <laughs> and he's, he wanted a second opinion. So I had to call the other attendant on duty. And guess what? He said the same thing. I was like, I'm sorry. Like we can reevaluate it in an hour. Like I know it's a terrible situation, but I can put you to bed. But if you throw up in the middle of the night, there's no one going to be there to help you. It's a sad situation, but there's certain people that if they throw up, they could, they could choke on their own vomit. Yeah. (laughs) I've been there. But I'm getting sidetracked. So the story, we were telling Jamie about the story. So we got decided to go into the tequila because Tony had said that he never had a tequila shot. So I was like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. So I got the tequila and I got the salt. I got the lime. Unfortunately, though, <laughs> Tony didn't have a salt shaker. All he had was a box of salt. Oh. And we were already a couple of drinks in. So I was like, no, no, no it's, it's fine. It's fine. I, I got this. It's going to be okay. So Tony lifts his, uh, like his neck up. So I get the salt ready. <laughs> and, of course, the spout broke. So the salt's just like mad pouring into his mouth. Oh no. Like the spout actually like removed. Like, so it's just a hole. And Tony, could you spit it out? I spit out as much as I could, but I still had a mouthful of salt. Oh my God. Justine, what did you do? Yeah. And so 
to this day, Tony has told me it's been almost 12 years and he still tells me to this day that I am fired from tequila shot. No, <laughs> don't do tequila anymore. I'll tell you, first of all, I almost threw up. Like I remember that ended with me being like, grab a garbage bag. Let me see if I can just get rid of this. I couldn't even throw up because I didn't actually have to throw up. I was just gagging on the disgusting mountain of salt that I just ate. Justine, it's surprising that Tony isn't more salty toward you in general. (laughs) In hindsight, it probably would have been a lot better if I had like even just put the salt in my hand and then just like sprinkled it in. I don't know. Why I felt we needed to pour the salt directly into his mouth, I don't know. <laughs> so that was like, I don't know, 2009, 2010. When that happened, I had my first drink with tequila in it like six months ago since then. You know what? Next time you just have to put the salt like on Jack's butt and then it will eventually what? end up in Tony's face. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because Jack always puts his ass in your face, Tony. I don't want to think of the notion of licking my cat's salty butthole. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, that was that was traumatic. I had a real hard time recovering from that one. Yeah, but luckily, like, there are many other better stories. That was just like, I'm surprised that he still wanted to be my friend after that. <laughs> well, I think that's what, like Jamie said, when you go through a traumatic experience together... Maybe it's trauma bonding. I don't know if that's a good thing, but like you do build a good friendship out of it. You're like, oh, well, if we can get through this stuff together, we can get through anything. And so I think in that moment, obviously, I wanted you to suffer with a mouthful of salt as well to understand what you had just put me to. But it did make us probably even closer. That's true. When I, when, uh, when you invited me on the podcast and I was trying to, think of stories that you know i could have in case i was asked about um most of the stories that come to mind like some of our like best tracks so to speak are ones that ended in trauma but we like (laughs) prevailed kind of thing and we were just like look at us now we did this yeah like look what we can overcome together yeah like like the the rain incident remember when you're trying to go to the movies and it rained on your whole chair like shut down Oh, I had almost forgotten about that, but that's a crazy story. Yeah, that was a nut story. Jamie, your mic is muted. Shit, sorry. Did you have to push Tony's chair in manual mode for miles? Yeah, so we were going to see... Hold on, it will come to me. Oh, was it off? No, Tarzan, sorry. We were going to see Tarzan. Tarzan. Okay, but see, see, how, see how good Justine is at remembering details? This is what we were talking about off-air before we started recording. I think this is why people think I hate them because I don't remember anything that ever happens. <laughs> so then Justin will be like, remember when we went to see Tarzan? I'll be like, we saw Tarzan? Yeah, so what happened was is I had met with Tony at his place and we had gone to the theater by his place. So Keys? Lansdowne. We had walked there. Oh, you mean from Metcalf? Yeah, I was so salty. We get there and they said like, oh, the elevator's out of service. And I'm like, excuse me? And they're like, yeah, it's sorry. Like, it's broken. And I'm like, you should put that on the website. Like, I'm sorry. Like, well, Yeah. Because all the theaters are upstairs. <laughs> like, the, the only way to get to the theater is to take that one elevator. 
yeah. So we had spent all that time. We had walked all the way there, made a plan or whatever, bought tickets online. And then they were like, oh yeah, the elevator's broken. So we were just like, whatever. So Tony and I were jazzed about this. And so we were just like, that's cool. We'll just go on a longer walk. So we walked to, I think, Carlton at that point. And uh, actually it was kind of cool though. We like, we went on a little like romantic walk around the lake or whatever, had some drinks that we had stashed in Tony's uh, backpack <laughs> and we get to Carlton and it downpours like torrential downpours. And so like we get off the bus and we're trying to get to the O train to get to South Keys. And see, this is what I'm talking about earlier is that sometimes I forget that Tony is in a wheelchair and he might need my help. So I got off the bus first and I tried to like get to the O train so like we can like make sure that we're ready to go or whatever. And I turn around and Tony's stuck in the <laughs> middle of the, of the road. Um, and I'm like, in the maybe middle 10 of the feet, road. Yeah. 10 feet in front of him. And I turn back around and he's like stuck, like completely stuck. And I felt like, like I'm such a jerk. So, cause I probably should have stayed, you know, so I could help him just to make sure he got there. At least you weren't like on the train already on your way to South Keys. Yeah, true. No, actually <laughs> I remember it wasn't on the road. You had made it across and you made it. Remember you made it like two feet before you got under the, uh, the, uh, little, I was so close. Yeah. You were so close. And then the thing breaks down. I'm just like, yeah. Oh my God. So Tony, of course he felt so terrible. He's like, well, let's just go home. And I'm like, no. So for people who don't know when a wheelchair gets wet, I don't know if we've talked about this, Jamie, Oh yeah. But when a wheelchair gets wet, like it just shuts off. And there's basically nothing you can do except drive into a wheelchair-sized bowl of rice and hope for the best. Or you wait, like, 36 hours for it to turn back try on. Out, yeah. Maybe maybe less. Like, sometimes you can get it in 12 hours if it hasn't been that wet. But there is really nothing you can do besides wait and hope. Or sometimes wait and then realize it's not turning back on and have to get a new joystick for your chair, which is, like, 1500 bucks like they're not meant to be used really outside in the rain and so it doesn't take that much even though it was a torrential downpour it doesn't take much for the chair to just be like no i'm too wet i'm done yeah it took like what from you to go from the bus stop at carlton to across the street to the o train to shut it off i was outside for like 20 seconds if that yeah well you know to be smart we probably should have put a bag in here yeah absolutely bag but anyway but they should be they should be waterproof and Elon yeah. Musk should be doing something about that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Tony Tony wanted to go home and I was just like, no, we're not we're not gonna be pussies about this. So I pushed his chair. Because this is where I'm like, oh, like this is where this is where I become a uh, I'm friend tending, right? But I was a beast. Like I don't wanna like come oh, off yeah. it sound, but I was. I pushed it. him from the O train all the way to the movie theater. Oh, wait, admit, that's like two kilometers. First of all, she pushed me onto the O train. Right? Off the O train. I'm, yeah. And there's there was still a pretty big of a lip to get on the O train too. And I pushed him on there. And then we went from the O train to the movie theater. The only time that I stopped is I couldn't get him up the ramp at South Keys, like the one that gets you on the theater, because it goes yeah. there. So I had to go inside and be like, listen, my friend's chair broke down. I've been pushing him for I don't even want to think of it. Can you please come out and help me? And sure enough, he came out and we got into the theater. I looked over at Tony. I was like, look at us. We did this. And we just watched the movie. That's such a crazy workout, though, actually. It's nuts. And then I pushed him all the way home. Well, not all the way like, back to the O-train and then repeated the process. 
I gotta say, Tony, like it kind of sounds like Justine might be stronger than Jeff McCool. Alfred, they should have a, a battle to see who has pushed my wheelchair into and out of more precarious situations. Yeah, like you come up with a triathlon where we like kill the battery <laughs> on your chair and yeah. then we make each of them like complete the course, like with you sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know if I'd be able to do that again. We'll see on my mold now, but yeah, that that was a that was a good time, and yeah, we saw that movie, and that was the end of that. I think most people would be like, "All right, no problem. Let's get you home. Like, we'll just end it there. Too bad that it didn't work out." But Justine was like, "We've come so far. We already went to one theater. They didn't want us there because their ableist elevator wasn't working. We came all the way to Carlton, and now we're taking the train, and we have to go to the movie." I'm in my head. I'm like, no, like I'm you're first of all, I'm always like, you don't know what you're signing up for. People are people so often are like, yeah, yeah, I can push your chair. Not realizing it's like a 350 pound chair plus me. So 354 pounds. Like, it's just like a big ask to, to ask someone to push you even 20 feet, let alone like you're saying, Jamie, from the O train to the movie theater. It's like. I don't know. Yeah, like a kilometer and a half. I felt really stupid that I pushed you all the way to the O train or to the theater. And then when we left and we walked outside and realized that, oh, man, that would have been a lot easier if we had just taken the elevator. We could have taken the bus one stop and had. Yeah, but then you'd have to push me up a ramp onto a bus, which would have been pretty hard. That's true. Yeah. And if there's a lot of foot traffic on that bus, then it's the whole fucking thing. It's really stressful. Yeah, yeah there, there's no easy way. Yeah, we've had a lot of uh, experience. Oh, and then there was the time that you almost died and I almost had a heart attack and you almost died in the movie theater. Oh, yeah. This one still kind of haunts me. Yeah, it haunts me. I still feel so guilty about that one. Can I make a guess about what happened? Yeah, sure. Take a guess. Did you like like almost choke on a, on a con- concession stand food candy? Nailed it. Yeah, so... I was, uh, we were there with two of our friends, Caitlin, and I think worked at the time, Kyle, and I was feeding him popcorn and I've gotten really good at like giving him popcorn. Like I don't even really have to look. I just know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to look. The funny yeah. thing is my mouth doesn't open very wide. And so you have to kind of like shove it in like <laughs> kind of aggressively. And so she's not looking. She'll just like reach over and start shoving popcorn in my face. So to like to anyone looking at this, it looks like abuse. Like she's just smothering you in butter. Because they're just like, whatever, eat your stupid popcorn. <laughs> yeah, shut up. <laughs> it's like you're trying to t- talk to her and like she's just like continuously feeling your she's just like, shut up and eat your popcorn. <laughs> But it's the only way that you can get it into him. But like, yeah. it's not even that. Like when I when I feed Tony, I've when I have introduced him to friends, they just like are like completely like like what the hell is going on? Because yeah. I find it helpful, so I use like a two utensil method where Justine. Oh wait, I just want to tell you this: you you invented that two spoon technique, and now every single attendant here that feeds me. I, I tell about this technique and everyone uses it. Yes. So I want you to know your legacy is continuing on. I'm famous. You are famous. The two spoon technique. Can you please elaborate, Tony? So you take a spoon and you just put like a little bit of food in. It's easier if you use a smaller spoon because this mouth is so small. <laughs> and then you kind of take a, uh, a fork or something, something 
obviously flat and you kind of just like push the food into his mouth. Okay. So you, you push the one utensil against the other until it like, yeah. And kind of push it into his, cause remember his mouth only opens like, like maybe an inch if you're lucky. So it's hard to actually, well, to be fair, I've been doing some physios. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it sounds like a sport to feed Tony. Like there's like, it is. Yeah. I, I took great pride. I'm like, I'm going to make this happen one way or another. But you can't just put it on a traditional spoon because the food just gets pushed up the utensil instead of going into his mouth. So I kind of would shimmy the food in his mouth that way. Tony, imagine how then, like, I think we're going to the same place right now, like an Olympic sport where, like, <laughs> it's like a, like a triathlon where they have to, like, push my chair somewhere far and then <laughs> feed me, like, eight peas without dropping any of them <laughs> off the spoon. <laughs> but, yeah, so... I yeah, I didn't I don't bring utensils to the movie theater, so the popcorn thing I have to kind of shove it in. But yeah, at the movie theater, I was giving him popcorn and he wasn't taking it from me. So I look over and he's like <laughs> You look over like you weren't looking yeah. before. <laughs> no, like I go to give him popcorn and he doesn't he doesn't take it from me. So I look over and the look on his face was just like of sheer horror. Oh no, Tony. <laughs> he couldn't tell me what was wrong. And keep in mind, too, like, if this were to happen now, I'm way more educated now, so I would know exactly what to do. But, like, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing back then. So, like, I'm freaking out. And surprisingly, Janie, I kid you not, not a single person in that theater even, like, cared. They were just, like, doing their own thing. Can you be quiet back there? Yeah, they, they like, I had a couple people look over. No one offered to help nothing until, like, after the situation had already resolved. So, anyway, I didn't know what to do. So I'm like trying to like dig it out of his mouth. And then at one point I'm like taking the straps off his chair and actually trying to like use gravity. So I have his straps like unhooked or whatever is I'm trying to like pull his neck forward to try to like get him to spit out the food. And then I think it was the funniest thing ever. So after like he had finally been able to dislodge the popcorn. So I get him situated back in his chair and I kid you not, you know, he says to me, Jamie, what did he's such a dick. <laughs> and he goes, he's like, well, he said, thanks. But you know what? It would have just been a lot easier if he had put my hand back on my joystick. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Because I guess in his, while he was choking, his hand had slipped off the joystick. Oh, So if he was able to move his chair, he probably could have moved his chairs to make himself be in a better position to like spit out the popcorn or something. Yeah. Like, like use the forward momentum of like ramming uh, the wall ahead of him or something. Well, not even like just like his head was reclined. Yeah. Oh, I see. Because I was kind of tilted and I had just had mountains of popcorn shoveled into my face. Yeah. Yeah. I eventually started like, uh, I needed to be able to reposition my head in order to swallow it. Because I can't turn my head on my own, right? So I have to, like, reposition my chair in order to actually turn my head. So I needed to basically just have my... If my hand was on my joystick, I would have just been able to tilt forward a tiny bit enough to swallow fine. Um, But because I couldn't, I was starting to choke. And I couldn't tell her, because I was choking, that that's all I needed. So she saved my life. And then I was like, you know, I think kind of trying to lighten the mood but also well to be fair i'm sure it was probably really traumatizing and i didn't know what to do so i'm just like you know trying to like dislodge it like myself and then i'm pulling straps off of his chair trying to like so 
essentially pull him out of his chair to give him like CPR or whatever. It's such a weird feeling knowing that like I'm choking and I need this little thing to help me. It's insignificant, but there's no way for me to communicate that I need that. Yeah, and uh, poor Caitlin. Caitlin was just beside herself because she didn't know what to do. And uh, the guy in front of us, after I had like already situated Tony back and I was just about to sit back down, he's like, do you need any help? He's like, no, like after I don't need thing. any help. After the credits roll. <laughs> and then, like when the lights come on. Oh, by the way, do you need help? <laughs> and then for the rest of the movie, I think I don't even remember watching most of the movie because every time I give him a piece of popcorn, I'm like looking at him just to make sure that like yeah. he understands, he knows what's going on. And we're like eating the popcorn very slowly, <laughs> having a drink in between just to make sure that, you know, they're going down properly. Popcorn is actually so dangerous. Yeah, it is. It'd be funny if um after you got it dislodged from your throat, you just said to Justine like, it's okay. It's your first day. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that respect, it kind of was because I don't know. The CPR that they give you at attendant services does not really prepare you for uh, things like that to happen. I guess that they don't teach you how to dislodge popcorn from one of your clients. Yeah. Well, how do you really do CPR for somebody in a wheelchair? You can do CPR on someone in a wheelchair. So ideally for someone like Jamie or someone who can has like the support to hold up their neck is that you can still get in behind them and do the Heimlich maneuver CPR for someone who can't you have to like squat and go go up to do CPR like you'd have to get on your knees and go upwards and then if that doesn't work you'd have to try to pull them out of their chair to get them on the ground but no there's definitely a lot of methods of how you can do CPR on someone in a wheelchair have you just picked these up or have they have you taken like a wheelchair CPR course? No, like uh, as a nurse, I took the uh, the BCLS course, which is the highest CPR course that you can take. So they go over how to do all that with someone who um, is disabled oh. or like not even someone who's disabled, like someone like in my community, in my uh, work where I have a lot of people that are a lot older and have dementia and they're all wheelchair bound. So they don't understand or they're unable to follow my direction if they were to choke. So yeah, it's really handy. So like with my uh, friends from attendant services and also just being at work, you need to be able to do CPR on every, pretty much anyone. I mean, this has proven that you are a stellar attendant. Well, most of these stories happen outside of you being my attendant, but they really solidified our friendship actually it was the stuff that we got into outside of attendance services that i feel like made me a better attendant it's so boring at work nobody chokes on popcorn at work (laughs) (laughs) fair fair like or yeah like you need to be able to feed popcorn or tequila shots on the fly or you know make jello shots that are ready to go for anyone to take even if you're in a wheelchair Man, we could do, we have so many stories. Holy, the your Jello shot game is also on another level. Um, but right, all that to say, this is kind of proven why you are the perfect guest to help us review this week's movie. Without going through the whole thing, I'll let Jamie do his perfect movie synopsis. Okay, my synopses are not perfect. They're just wordy. No, but it's good, like. 
I feel like I've seen the movie when I listen to your podcast. I'm like, I haven't seen this movie, but I already feel like I know exactly what happened right. based on your synopsis. You don't give yourself enough credit, Jamie. Thanks, Justine. I appreciate that. If you haven't seen the movie Me Before You, this is probably a good time to pause the episode if you have any intention of watching the movie. Because this movie, you know, we don't want... There's going to be major spoilers in this episode. If you want to watch the movie and you care about spoilers, stop listening to the podcast now, watch the movie, and then come back and finish the movie. But you've been warned... It's funny, we've never given a disclaimer like this before, but we always majorly spoil every movie we, we cover. Yeah, we do, but I feel like this one, it's like hard to even talk about the movie for a bit without spoiling the movie. Right. I don't even know what the trailer of this movie's like, but I don't know how they would advertise this movie without spoiling it. Do you think we need to preface as well that we are not anti... Well, I suppose we should explain the premise of the movie yeah. before we continue. <laughs> so basically, this film is about a wealthy early 30-something business mogul in the United Kingdom who is very physically active and kind of, uh, how do do you describe it? He looks, the actor who plays this guy uh, looks like he could be on the cover cover of Gentleman's Gentleman's Quarterly. (laughs) Is that a magazine you subscribe to? (laughs) No, 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 of course not. Of course not. It's just something that I'm aware of. You do Gentleman's Weekly. GQ. You don't know about GQ? Is that what GQ is? Yeah, it's GQ. Gentleman's Quarterly. GQ is Gentleman's Quarterly? Come on, Tony. What the fuck, man? I know GQ, but I, I didn't know GQ stood for the story. They make a point of making it known at the beginning of the movie that he is uh, very active. I don't know how to put it nicely, but like he's he has a lot of women. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, he has a prolific sex life. Yeah, like, like the movie opens like with him in bed with like a a, a generically gorgeous blonde woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he g- gets up out of bed and he's in this uh, amazing apartment that looks like a cross between like a Starbucks. And like, I don't know, it, it like very douchey aesthetics kind of, right? Yeah, he's got all the gadgets. Yeah, and he's like about to go get on his motorcycle. Oh no, I saw this apartment, I was like taking notes. Yeah, right? It, it looks so like overwhelmingly contemporary. Um. So anyway, he's about to like leave his apartment after, after having sex with his girlfriend and he grabs his key and his helmet for his sexy motorcycles you know immediately that he's a risk-taking badass (laughs) and uh so he goes out into the rain and there's all this like shitty foreshadowing and then bob's your uncle he becomes paralyzed (laughs) imagine that's that's how he wakes up after the coma and the the doctor's like well bob's your uncle you've been paralyzed (laughs) (laughs) you knew this was coming based on the opening scene of the film Shouldn't have worn your sexy motorcycle on it. Yeah, so basically, this overly handsome douchebag with an active physical and sexual life uh, does not know how to deal with being uh, a paraplegic. He's quadriplegic. Quadriplegic. Yeah. 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 Oh, sorry, quadriplegic. Uh, and so he um, he basically resolves to uh, kill himself in six months, and his parents do not want him to do that because they believe that he can lead a meaningful life despite his situation. And so they hire a pretty waitress to basically be his friend 
for the final half year of his life and try to persuade him not to die. Well, doesn't he, he doesn't, he, but they make a point of saying that like he spent two years doing, uh, like right after his accident, doing like, uh, physio and all that stuff to see if maybe he could improve his quality of life. And then he gives up and says, okay, I'm done. I'll give you six more months. And then I'm like going to peace out to Switzerland and get this done. Yeah. Sorry. I'm being, um, kind of, uh, brief about this because there's some underlying, well, yeah, we'll get to that. We also should note that he's like mega rich, right? Yeah. And by the way, that's a trope in a lot of these fucking wheelie movies. Yeah, it is. But we've watched like at least two other movies in which the newly disabled person has a lot of money. And that seems to kind of balance out the scales to some extent in the eyes of the script. And I find that trope super duper annoying because like it's harder to imagine how to make a compelling film for like a middle class paraplegic because it's too sad. So we'll make him rich and that way it'll add some mystery and some fucking intrigue. The Sessions, he was poor. Yes, but The Sessions is an art house film. Yeah, and it's that movie's kind of full of heart and uh, it's really good. Yeah. Mind you, I, I haven't seen a lot of like other movies that use this trope. My takeaway when watching this particular film, Me Before You, is that when he finally does kill himself, is that it was kind of like the takeaway that like this man had everything he had like he had like the the best van he had the best equipment he he lived in a castle for god's sakes and it still wasn't enough to persuade him to live a full life is the fact that like even when he kind of like falls in love with her near the end that like he could take her to paris he could take her to wherever she wanted to go and it still wasn't enough to convince him to want to want to live is that's what I took away from it, that even money wasn't enough to to basically make a, a bad situation in his mind, you know, like livable. Which to, which in my mind would mean that he needs a lot of therapy, not that he needs to go to fucking Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should talk about who this attendant is because he's always been rich. So like, if you're always rich, I think money just becomes kind of numb to you. But if you were poor get into a crazy accident and it flips a switch that makes you rich. Like you get some crazy insurance settlement. Maybe it's different because then you have all these new resources that you can play with that you didn't have before, but he'd always been rich. So he, he didn't have like a new perspective on money. He just had a bunch. He didn't, he didn't gain anything. He just lost a bunch. Right. But then Amelia Clark comes in. You know, the mother of dragons, absolutely gorgeous. And she is trying to be basically just a light in his day. Yeah. Um, And I should sort of preface like everything that I say after this point with um, I I kind of have a major crush on Amelia Clark in this film. Oh, same. Yeah. Like big time crush. So. After I watched this movie the first time, mm-hmm. I just started watching random movies with her aunt because I couldn't get enough. <laughs> so that's why you guys were so quiet watching the movie as you were <laughs> crushing hard on Amelia Clark. That's why I couldn't have my video on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, I And I should also say too that like, you know, I didn't, I'm not really a big fan of her character in Game of Thrones because she's kind of one note. Like, and I will not get into the canon of that fucking series, so don't worry. Yeah, please. But I just find, like, you ever notice that 
Daenerys is always making the same stupid face. Like it's she looks like a like a Mass Effect like non-player character, just like like dead eyes and like mm-hmm. very serious. You need to you need to step off a little bit. Okay? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just that all, all I'm trying to say is that Game of Thrones does not tap into Amelia Clark's natural range as an actress. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. All the movies I've seen her in where I develop my crush, mm-hmm. um, she is like a heart. She just like puts her soul out there. She's like, yeah, just full of soul. She's so cute and happy and playful. And that's what's intriguing. It feels authentic. Like she's not playing cute or it's not like she's this woman who knows she's cute and is like playing to it. It's it, she actually does appear to to be generous of spirit. Yeah. And I would argue as well that like her her most compelling feature weirdly enough I was fixated on this the entire time is is her eyebrows. She has like incredibly animated eyebrows yeah. to, to to a distracting extent. But there are so many scenes in this movie where like Will Trainer or whatever the fucking paraplegic's name is is just like not pulling his weight because yeah. he's extremely um basic in his like cripple misery. He's just like not really not really suggesting much more to him than like a base frustration with his overall situation. And so she basically has to pull the entire emotional weight of the film. Mm-hmm. And she she kind of totally does it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they did a really good job, like, all the times that he'd kick her out of the room. Like, you know, really displaying, like, how much she was struggling in order to, you know, do a good job. And he just wasn't having any of it or, like, engaging with her at all. Yeah, before she kind of, like, cracks his shell, there's a number of scenes where he is just, like, um, mean to her. And we, we've we seen that scene in um, The Fundamentals of Caring, like, you know, when uh, Paul Rudd is being interviewed for his attendant gig and the kid is a total dickhead. And I think you see it as well in the descendants or whatever that movie is with Brian Cranston. Uh, he's a bit of a hard ass to all the people he's interviewing. So it's another one of those tropes, but in this movie, that's, I don't know if that's a trope. Well, like it's a trope, but I don't know if it's unrealistic because that's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with how I am. I'm kind of like hard and standoffish at the beginning and then eventually someone like Justine comes along and I'm like, oh, okay, you're cool. I'll be open with you. I don't know. Even when you're a dickhead, you're not a dickhead. Like you're, you're trying to make people laugh and you, you're showing people that you're a person first like and foremost. <clears throat> and they, they kind of uh, position Will Trainer in this movie uh, as like a beast character, like from Beauty and the Beast, because he lives in a castle, <laughs> really disagreeable. And he, he like they even have him like with full facial hair, like grizzly, and like with long hair down down his, to his shoulder length. And so he's like he's like this grizzly disabled guy, and and she's like the young girl from the from the small town mindset, and she's full of light. And even the way she dresses is just like abundantly full of color and uh, like cute and approachable and whatever. And so she has to try to crack crack his shell and i don't think he fucking deserves it we should also mention that this movie is based on a book is it really yeah i read the book before yeah, i is. watched the movie and is the book based on reality or someone's romantic fantasy yeah it's someone's like mommy cripple porn but it is like uh i still like them i like the movie more 
that I like the book, but that's probably just because I have a big crush on Amelia Clark. Well, I, I don't know. I just think they did a really good job, like getting some of the struggles with that type of relationship, like on film. They did. Yeah. That's that's one thing I really liked about this movie is they. It feels like they. I don't know if the author of the book or the writers of the movie knew disability from an internal perspective, but they definitely they captured a lot of like his hesitation to be with her or his hesitation to let himself get close to basically anyone. Yeah. Uh, it, it felt very real and very relatable to a point where I didn't even, I was kind of annoyed with myself that I was relating to it because I didn't want to relate with someone who was like ultimately so like mean and depressed. I know exactly how you feel. I felt the same. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it was a very small part of the scene, but what really like stuck with me is like when she originally comes into what they call the annex, which is like his adapted environment. Yeah. And like, it just, the, the screen kind of like shifts over into like the commode chair and like, I don't just the look on her face of like, what am I getting myself into? Like what is happening? <sighs> and like going into his room and all the equipment's out or whatever, like the lift and all that stuff. It's like, Oh, like, they did a really good job, in my opinion, of like capturing like that initial like kind of like shock that she must have been feeling when she walked in and being like, what is happening right now? You know what? It's funny. His annex actually looked a lot like the layout of like uh, of a suite in Leeds house at Carlton. Mm-hmm. Kind of does, actually. Yeah. And um, I, I thought it was really funny that so long as we're talking about like set design and stuff, like any of the scenes where Amelia Clark is with her family, like she lives in a small house. And so, like, she's always in close quarters with her siblings or her mother and father, and everyone's always talking, and it's loud and, like, boisterous. And then whenever it cuts to, like, Will Trainer's like, private life or his home, like, his parents live in this huge mansion. So they're always, like, very far apart and quite isolated, and it's, like, hard um, colorless kind of aesthetics. There's this, there's a, there's a lack of warmth, and there's, like, a... Except, yeah, I know what you're saying because it's like, except for her, everything is cold and heartless, right? And colorless and formal. And it's interesting to me, his parents don't really have a relationship with him. They never talk. Mm-hmm. Like they very rarely uh, enter the annex once uh, once they hire uh, Amelia. I don't know that that those dynamics kind of seem realistic to me for some reason. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, it it was very clear when watching the movie that, like, the annex or his living space is separate from the rest of the house. When you notice when she comes into the uh, castle, you don't really get a sense that that area is even, like, wheelchair accessible. The furniture is very crowded and very, you know, centered around the room. There wouldn't be a lot of room to, like, move around. So I kind of got the sense when watching it, like, if you look at the clips of their house, that he very much lives separate in the annex, as they call it, in its own separate area. And he doesn't really interact with the rest of the house. By the way, his mother notes that his living space is a retrofitted fucking barn. Yeah. Like, what the hell? Yeah. What's going on with that? Like, they didn't have enough money to, like, like build a proper <laughs> fucking extension to the house. So, so they actually kind of suggest that he's like a wounded horse or something. Like, they're going to fucking put him out to pasture eventually. <laughs> when I watch this movie, like, I go back and forth so many times in, like, the sense of, like, 
like why he came to the decision he came through and like even watching the movie again like it's very powerful in the sense like even we're talking about like the living space like he doesn't have a relationship with his family his family kind of like treat like kind of make him come off as like you said wounded like here's a barn that you can have to like live the rest of your life and you're not gonna we're not gonna really like do anything special for the rest of the house you can be still a part of this family just here's an area we'll retrofit it for you hire you some people so you can have people to take care of you and that's that yeah for someone with unlimited resources he definitely didn't have like like he lived in a nice place it was a castle and it had everything he needed but it it didn't seem like he was set up to really enjoy his life really just kind of thrive and survive there wasn't really anything beyond staying alive comfortably but if you have that much that much money and that many resources at your disposal, I'd like to think you could have given him or he could have taken more. Like, first of all, how accessible is a castle in the first yeah, place? Yeah, it's like exactly. the least uh, um, reasonable space to house a wheelie, even if he does have a barn that's specifically retrofitted for his needs. Well, they, they make a point of saying that it is doable. Like when he takes her up, like, the side of the mountain or whatever when she's like freaking out thinking he's gonna like fall over a cliff or whatever yeah yeah there's a lot of scenes of him driving around on grass strangely enough yeah so yeah the sense that he's taking his wheelchair off of its designated space and actually trying to fucking live that's another thing too is i thought it was like another you know good representation of what that uh what it's like for someone like in his position like when she takes them to like the racetrack and i've totally been there with uh friends that are like disabled where you take them somewhere and like the environment is just not well suited like when he gets stuck in the dirt Mm. for the first little bit or whatever i was like oh i totally know like well i don't know how he's feeling but like i can relate because i've been there when that happens to someone and like like just the look on his face of just being like completely like oh my god like this is the worst yeah because you don't want anyone to look at you and then you're drawing all this attention to you when you used to be the guy who would come over and help someone in that situation Mm -hmm. now you're the guy that needs help and you don't want to be that guy because you don't want to feel helpless and yeah and that's the first time he left the house in yeah. probably years. And he does it like sort of as a favor to Amelia because she's worked so hard to earn his trust and proven to be like warm and accommodating and all that. She she brings him out and, and within the first two minutes of leaving his accessible van, he's stuck in mud. But there's also this kind of sense too that like his very like aristocratic upbringing and his Britishness just cannot withstand the sheer embarrassment of being disabled. Like there's a moment um, later on in that scene where they decide to go have dinner somewhere. And there's like a dining hall, like adjacent to the track. And he he says some shitty line like, Oh, I I don't like the idea of being spoon fed in public or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like he doesn't want to dine out in front of people. And I was just like, what a shitty attitude. Like, this guy fucking sucks. I mean, I kind of relate to that. I know you do, but you don't talk like that. And like... Yeah, that's true. Like, the way he talks, he's like sarcastically putting himself down, but there isn't like any humor behind it. It's all contempt. I think it's the way that like 
some like privileged conservative like dickhead writer in Hollywood thinks disability would be like if they suddenly became a paraplegic. I I resent it a lot. Like it's extremely offensive, unfortunately. I bet you a lot of people probably would think like that. Though. I know. So, so what I find so troublesome about this movie is that um, there are many things that it kind of does well. Like if it was if it was just a romantic comedy between like a dickhead stockbroker and the young like Starbucks uh, waitress who who <laughs> warms his heart, like it would have worked because the lead lead actors are like decent performers. They have chemistry and charisma, and they sell their attraction. So, like the fact that that aspect of the movie draws you in like it it allows you to develop a tolerance for some of the other bullshit surrounding it yeah i don't know i'm not sure if that's a good thing or not well the relationship that he has with amelia clark i don't even remember what her character is in the movie her last name is actually clark in the movie oh that's right yeah because he calls her clark all the time yeah so we'll just call her clark yeah the relationship they have is interesting because I don't know. It's a relatable relationship where you like someone because you, Justin, you can probably attest to this, but like when you are someone's attendant, you spend a lot of time with them. You see them pretty often. You see them at many different times of their day in so many situations. It's pretty much impossible to not develop like some kind of friendship or some something beyond a strictly professional relationship right yeah i agree the only thing that i that bothered me about the movie though is that i got the sense that she was hired to be more of a companion Mm. and help him with little things because they always had um i don't remember his name but they always had him come in to do like the majority of his care like get him dressed in the morning like i kind of got the sense that she wasn't really helping him with intimate care like she'd adjust his pillows and help him eat or whatever but she wasn't really doing and I kind of wish that they would so that you could kind of see the, you know, the interchangeable relationship of like what it's like for someone to be an attendant, but also, you know, step into that, like, ooh, could this turn into something romantic? Could it not? Yeah. But maybe they kept that separate afterwards when they actually did, you know, an attraction did develop when they had to kind of like figure out like if there was anything more there than just a a friendship that was built on trust and just mutual respect. It kind of seemed like the movie didn't really think much of Clark herself. Like there was like a, there was like some classism going on in this movie. Like mm-hmm. Will Trainer's father refers to Clark as just a waitress, like a number of times. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where the two of them, Will and Clark, they go, they go to a, a wedding together and they have this moment where they like dance on the dance floor. And it's kind of this, the turning point where they actually start to acknowledge that they have romantic feelings for one another. And the whole scene works. Like you actually do want them to fall in love and you're like kind of rooting for them to get closer. And, but then on the dance floor at some point, Will says like, I don't think you and I would know each other if I were not disabled. You know you never would have let those breasts so near to me if I was in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, well, you never would have been looking at these breasts if you hadn't been in a wheelchair. Yeah, so it's like suggesting yes. that like the only way that a that a gratuitously rich, uh, privileged dude 
whatever meet like a girl working at a coffee shop uh, is if he was a paraplegic. And and just that like suggestion is fucking stupid. Also, like he he makes the point of like making sure to know that he's like rich. Like when he offered her her dad a job, I cringed hard. I was like, that is not okay. You can't just <sighs> swoop in and be like, yeah, I just offered your dad a job, and she's just like, okay. Again, yeah, it's like all of his courtship is sort of around money. Like he he brings her on these exotic trips. And to these, you know, formal events, parties and whatnot. And like he gives her a job and as you say, like employs her father. So she's kind of indebted to him. And th- th- there, there's definitely like a power dynamic there that is uh, troublesome. But the movie never really alludes to it. And I feel like if he wasn't rich, the movie also would have had to be more imaginative as to how Will would court her. Yes. Like it would have had to work harder on actually writing dialogue that was convincing that told us that, you know, like, oh, Will does actually have a fucking soul and he's not just a fucking bro who acquired a disability. You know what I mean? Like it would have taken a lot more work. And instead, they're just like, oh, we'll just make him rich and he'll just spoil her until she decides to kiss him. Like, I, it's just fucking annoying. But you know what they it it was cute that they put in that one scene when he comes to her parents for dinner. Yeah, and they obviously they obviously uh, put the uh, I don't even know how to describe him, but the boyfriend who was pretty much a douche. <laughs> yeah, like from the minute he meets Will, like he's not educated. It's pretty much what you would expect someone to treat someone in a wheelchair. And then he gives her this expensive jewelry, the boyfriend, and she like clearly hates it. And then Will comes up. He gives her like the quirky tights and she's just like, it was very sweet. He gives her a gift that suggests that he fucking understands what, who she is and what she's into, mm-hmm. which is like pretty much the only moment in the movie where he displays some kind of empathy or uh, acknowledgement that there's an experience in this world outside of his own. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with you overall, though. They do make it really a point of paying out that he does, he's he's rich. Even like when he like introduces her to like the subtitle film, he makes a point of pretty much implying that she's not very cultured or really like all that yeah. since she doesn't watch the subtitled movies. The other thing too, you mentioned uh, Clark's actual boyfriend, Justine, who's just this like jealous and petty piece of crap himself. But the interesting thing is like the way they position him to look like Mr. Wrong is so hilarious if you really think about it, because in all these rom-coms, like they always position Mr. Wrong as having like the, the exact opposite value system of Mr. Right. And so naturally the Mr. Wrong of the disabled romantic interest is some fucking asshole who runs every day <laughs> who prioritize fitness, you know? So, and he's, he's constantly like uh, Clark's boyfriend is constantly nagging her to like look after herself and to uh, do cardio with him and to like attend triathlons with him and go do things like he's advocating for her physical health and well-being. And because Will is fucking disabled, he's the bad guy. She's like, oh, no, I don't care about going for runs. I'd rather, uh, you know, wear colorful clothes and run around on the grass with a wheelchair dude. Well, I mean. He wasn't a likable guy, though, like the boyfriend. No, but when you really think about it, like he wasn't actually pushing for much. Like he just wanted her no. to 
fucking care about her cardio. <laughs> and like, well, I kind of got the sense the boyfriend essentially was the epitome of what Will stood for before he got injured. Like, yeah, that's also a very, very good yeah. point. Which, which also suggests again that if Will was not disabled, he would not fall in love with uh, uh, Amelia Clark. Well, she didn't. She wasn't a model like his other girlfriends, so yeah, that probably would have been a problematic relationship. Yeah, and fucking Will kills himself because he can't return to being an ideal physical specimen. Well, first of all, the dinner scene. At the end of the scene, they're saying their goodbyes, and Will has basically shown, like you said, his only shred of real humanity towards another person up until this point and gives Amelia like a a great gift. And Patrick, the boyfriend, gives a gift of a gold chain with his own name on it. (laughs) Like, really? (laughs) It was definitely some like male posturing there. Like, yeah, she's mine and I'm going to make sure she has my name around her neck at all times. Yeah, I'm going to fucking like uh, cattle brand her with my name. Yeah, and then it even seems like her family, like her friend or her uh, parents and her sister are kind of more into Will. Like they seem to like him more than they really care about Clark's relationship with uh, with her, her actual boyfriend. Mm-hmm. But then when they're leaving, Will Trainer says this line that like was meant to be like, wow, good for him for saying something like that. But I want to know what you guys think about this line. Is it funny or is it like holy cow how could you say that so they're leaving and they're saying their goodbyes and the boyfriend is like you know i'm just trying to do what's best for my girlfriend like just kind of remind because he's definitely threatened by will for many reasons and will responds with she certainly gives a good bed bath oh yeah i forgot about that (laughs) what can you actually say that? <laughs> and then his parents laugh. Like, oh, good one, boy. Yeah, like, bazinga. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like gotta be way too far. That's super toxic. And if I were Clark in that situation, I'd be pissed at both of them. <laughs> yeah, but it came off like everyone was like, oh, goofy. How could you say that? Yeah, oh, the cripple made a joke. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I don't know that one. That one was like, are you kidding me? Like, there's no way if I said that to any one of my friend tenants who had a boyfriend to their boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Oh, like she certainly washes my balls real good. Like what? (laughs) Can you imagine me still being their friend the next day? Yeah, they totally shove popcorn in your face. (laughs) I also want to go back to that line that you uh, brought up, Jamie. You know you never would have let those breasts so near to me if I was in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, well, you never would have been looking at these breasts if you hadn't been in a wheelchair. So obviously that's supposed to be like super cute and like super, but is there truth to it? Yeah, I think we, I think uh, we affirmed that before. There's there's definite truth to it, but it's a major problem. What? Because like it, it implies that they actually they actually are incompatible with one another. Okay, in the defense of the movie. It's not implying that they're incompatible. I think it's implying that they would have been incompatible before his accident. Mm-hmm. But he wants to return to who he was before the accident. So he wants to return to someone that wouldn't be attracted to her. Yeah, but he's also like, 
trying to look at this journey of becoming a new person. And she's definitely trying to push him down that path. Mm-hmm. Which is why the happy ending would be for him to fucking grow up and stay alive. And be with her. Yeah. Yeah, that was my uh, biggest problem with the movie is that like I don't really have too much against his decision to end his own life. I know it might sound controversial, but it is his life. If he wants to end it prematurely, it was fine. What bothered me, though, is that he never really accepted who he was as the accident. Like, I feel like he didn't give himself like the whole time he was doing physio. It was very clear. He wasn't interested in really being doing physio to kind of become his best version of himself you know as a disabled person it was i either want to be exactly who i was before my accident or i don't want to do it at all yeah and then even when he's confronted with having this relationship with her and she you definitely get the sense that she is completely game to explore this with him whatever that means whether it means like even like they show it cue when like she's like sitting on his lap or whatever, you know, since he can't dance with her when she like makes the first move and kiss him. And he kind of is just like, no. And he makes that point of telling her like the things that I wish I could do to you or, you know, like, uh, like he mentions wanting to be able to undress her and he's not even willing to even Uh experience what that would be like as a disabled person. He just cuts it off completely and she leaves in tears and he doesn't even like have any desire to explore what that relationship would look like. Yeah, yeah, is it worth me playing that clip? Like, that's like a powerful, it's near the end, but like, it's a pretty powerful speech that he gives. And I, I don't know, it was relatable to me too. Like, again, there was a lot of the moments in this movie where I I felt what he was saying and I didn't like that I felt it. Like, even the wheelie breasts one where he's like, you wouldn't let me be that close to you. I felt that before. I'm like, uh, I think you think I'm like gay best friend because I'm disabled. And like, you don't think of me as like a sexual viable option. So you let your guard down around me and that's why we're closer than we would be otherwise or something. Yeah. Um. So I completely understand what you're saying. And I should also preface, like I'm not anti-assisted suicide and like, no. you know, like there is probably a context of this or a version of this film where him killing himself like would not have upset me. But I just don't think that the script itself is smart or nuanced enough to really earn whatever that moment is. Like, I don't really think it thinks that Will's life is valuable because his father, Charles Dance, when he realizes that Will wants to die and he's actually going to go through it, even though he's struck up some chemistry with Amelia Clark and it looks like things are going well, He's like, you know what? Fine. Uh, let's uh, let's develop a travel plan for the two of them so he can enjoy his last month alive. And let's set it up so that he can be a real man or let's make him feel like a real man or some sort of bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking like, well, what is a real man then? You're saying like there are no real disabled men? Like, fuck off. <laughs> and the movie doesn't, it, it doesn't position... His father is like an evil asshole for saying that. He's actually like shown to be sympathetic and understanding or whatever. And that should never be the case, you know? And why doesn't Will have a job? 
because he, he had a career doing some sort of rich guy thing, presumably where he wouldn't actually have to engage in any kind of physical fucking labor. You know, he could commit white collar crimes from a wheelchair. Probably no problem. <laughs> so why doesn't he go to fucking work every day? Jesus Christ. That pissed me off too. That's what I mean. He doesn't he doesn't really become like a full-fledged disabled person. Like he doesn't have a job. He doesn't engage in any uh sports or whatever, which you can totally do in a wheelchair. Like yeah. you could have done some extreme sports in a wheelchair and still be a dare daredevil or whatever like he was before. And you know what? He could have been in a relationship with Amelia Clark's character and he's just like, no, I can't do it the way that I want to do it, so I don't want to do it at all. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you're right, Anthony, this movie is like several of its uh, story beats like really do connect with the audience because the underlying emotions at play in a lot of cases feel real or are well orchestrated or whatever. But it's it, it all seems to be in service of like a very misguided outlook. Yeah. Like like you said, it didn't really feel like they gave us enough to make us believe that he was still making the right decision after all, all of these new things that happened to him. Like yeah. he, I understand if your life is so hinged on your ability to be active physically, and then all of a sudden that's t- completely stripped from you, and you no longer have the opportunity to be active in any way, and you don't foresee a world where you can get back to that life. I understand that it would be hard to really find the will to live when you love your life before and you really just can't get back to it. I actually talked to my physio about this and she said that she sees it pretty often where somebody gets in an accident like this, loses complete function and basically they never really recover mentally because they're always stuck in that old life. So I don't think that the movie is far off in any sense. And that's why I think it was hard because it was, it was so close. I just feel like it just, just missed the mark because it really does. It pulls on all your heartstrings. I cried both times I watched it. And that's, I don't cry very often. Yeah, man. Like my, I definitely had a rock in my throat in the final scene. Yeah. Yeah. Very heavy. And yeah, you're right, Tony. It is very, I've asked, like after I watched this movie the first time, I asked some of my, my friends that are able-bodied just, you know, out of curiosity. I was like, Hey, like curiosity, if you were to, you know, become disabled tomorrow and could not walk, surprisingly, a lot of people have, have told me that they would, you know, that they don't think that they would be able to carry on living because yeah. they just, it would be such a shock to go from one to the other. But, but would they still feel that way if disability was more visible? Like if we had more um, depictions of disabled people in popular culture living healthy, fulfilling lives, like would they still feel that way if they listened to our podcast, Tony? I think part of it is, they haven't heard the podcast, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is, right, like there aren't enough examples of paths you can take. Mm-hmm. So when someone, there, there, it's hard to imagine how you can make your life, quote, meaningful or enjoyable when you 
live one way and then all of a sudden your life is a completely different thing. And there aren't a lot of way, there aren't a lot of places in media to look to, for example, on how can I live in a way that would still make me feel happy. It's true. Like, especially even look at the movie that we watched today. Like, that's why I have such a big issue with how they portrayed their relationship and how he cut it off prematurely. Like, they really didn't really do much in kind of exploring what that relationship would look like. Like, if they were to become, like, sexual with each other. Like, they kind of didn't really do much in terms of, like, some people do consider disabled people as, especially quadriplegics or whatever, because people still believe that if you're quadriplegic that you can't do anything from the neck down. Like I know lots of quadriplegics who still have a very fulfilling sex life Yeah, and that they, people that are not educated that watch this movie, like when he makes that point of saying like, I can't be intimate or I can't be naked with you or whatever is that they kind of just kind of kept the theme going as someone watching it being like, Oh, like he's probably got a point. He probably couldn't enjoy sex even if he wanted to, which is not the case. Whereas to me, it would have been better if they had done it. And then he was like, yeah, you know, like, I still can't get on board with this, this version of myself. Then I would probably had not have as much of a problem with him ending his life because like, at least he tried. And it's one thing to like, not try and take your own life versus, okay, I did everything I could. I put everything into this and I just still can't, I can't get on board with who this person is anymore. Do you want me to play that that monologue he gives Jamie? Do you think we should play it? Yeah, go ahead and play it. It'll 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 fire me up. I don't want you to miss all the things that someone else could give you. And selfishly, I don't want you to look at me one day and feel even the tiniest bit of regret or pity. I would never think that. You don't know that. I can't watch you wandering around the annex in your crazy dresses. We'll see you naked and not... not be able to do... Oh, God, Clark, if you had any idea what I want to do to you right now... <laughs> I can't live like this. Oh, please. what a jackass. It's tough, right? Because even listening to it right there, I'm getting worked up again. Because it, it's a compelling monologue. I get what he's saying. It's just like... But he's not speaking from a place of being educated. Like, No, you don't have any imagination. Yeah, like, and it's not the case. And that's, that's the problem is, is that I feel like people watching this movie that may not have a lot of experience with like interacting with people in the disabled community but that's just like it's so not the case like yeah things would look differently but like it can be done right i think that's that's like what jamie was saying before if we had more representation then it would be easier for people to imagine a world where oh you can become quadriplegic and still have a healthy relationship and be with someone and yes you can have sex and you can travel and you can do basically anything there's adapted sports like pretty much anything is possible if you put your mind to it and you have a bit of imagination and yeah you do have to step away from this idea of trying to do it the way everyone else is doing it because that's never going to be the case but even if you're able-bodied every Every snowboarder does it a little bit differently, you know? It's you, you just have to kind of like separate yourself from that 
I think the other thing that's frustrating for me is because there aren't enough movies about disability uh, that end on a positive note. This movie is like one of those movies, a bunch of people saw it because it came out like 2016, which is Amelia Clark was at like pretty much the height of her fame right after Game of Thrones. Everyone knew who she was and she's now in this movie. Everyone goes to see it. And now anyone who doesn't have an experience of disability thinks, oh, everyone who's disabled uh, wants to kill themselves. That sucks. Yeah, and uh, no, you can't possibly have a sexual relationship if you're a quadriplegic. Like, yeah, he clearly wasn't even willing to try, so clearly it must be. Yeah, he didn't even try. No. Yeah, I don't know. Like, this is maybe going to sound cheesy, but I kind of believe that uh, a lot of intimacy is in your head. Like, it's like it's in it's in the realm of the emotional or whatever, and uh, it's a matter of mutual desire between two people and like the need to like express that desire or like get it out there, like share it, have it out there in the world. And like, you don't need to be a total porn star to have a fucking satisfying sex life with someone. It just means you have to rethink exactly how to express your desire toward the person that you care about. And it it seems stupid to me that Will thinks that this is the end of the line because first of all, he says he doesn't want, Clark to miss out on anything that she might miss that she might want or she might have gotten with an able-bodied partner but she wouldn't fucking be there in the first place if she wasn't getting something from Will that she wasn't getting somewhere else yeah it's a good point like she left her boyfriend essentially like they pretty much like low-key broke up before she left exactly she sacrificed a lot and she's demonstrated that she's fucking in it and in fact it was her who actively went out and solved most of the obstacles that prevented Will from doing things. Mm-hmm. Like when they decided that, oh, it's Will's last month to live or whatever, it was placed on Clark's shoulders to plan his itinerary. It wasn't like he fucking, you know, uh, made any of the arrangements himself. All he did was say that he's going to fucking go to Switzerland. <laughs> so the, the guy's kind of a piece of shit really he is and he he definitely flirts with her and he like entertains her notions as she's like you know kissing him or whatever and then just as it's like you're starting to root for them where you see him kind of soften a little bit and then he's just like and then like the, the, what kills me is like they're kissing and then he gives this monologue and you hear it in the clip where she's like well please please and then we cut it before they, you have, you have to want to go and watch the movie people. But anyway, and she's like screaming and she's crying. And then he just yells her name. He doesn't chase her. He just yeah. calls her name. And that's the end of it. Yeah. He didn't try. Cause he didn't try. This whole movie is him not trying. Privileged bastard. Fine. Let's just play devil's advocate. And we'll say that he physically couldn't get to her on the beach, but I'm yeah. sorry when they're like going to the airport, it's like, obvious that they haven't talked at all yeah they haven't talked at all like he didn't even like address it when he did say that he couldn't get to her at the beach like he didn't address it and even when um like the parents ask if she wants to have the lunch with them when they get back and he's just like let her go yeah he had so many opportunities to make it right with her or to change his mind and he's just like no i'm just gonna kill myself yeah she didn't deserve him or no, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't deserve her. No. 
And even the letter that he wrote her at the end, like after he had died, like not once did he really express like how he felt about her. It was just no. live life. To like, I was expecting like, you know, like for him to tell her that he loved her or like, yeah, you were the best thing that happened to me. He told her when she got to Switzerland, I'm glad you're here. And then he, uh, and once again, it's just about to get really intimate. And then he's like, you can ask for my parents to come back in. Yeah. And then he writes a letter. He's like, live life to the fullest, you know, like here's some money to get here. Once again, here's some money to get you started, live your life, you know, free of, of like basically money issues or whatever. It's just like, oh. So you're saying he's a douchey cock tease, Justine? <laughs> he is like, he yeah. like, he's totally willing to like flirt with her and to like, you know, like entertain that flirtation with her and then as soon as she actually expresses that she wants more he's like no and then i feel like they position it like he's the hero in all this because he look at all the stuff he's had to go through and he still makes the hard decision to end it all yeah and then he, get, and then he just basically throws some money at her and he's like here you go yeah you'll be fine buy some perfume he sends her off to france and he's like telling her about this this perfume at a shop somewhere that she would love. It smells like lavender yeah. and something else. Extreme. Yeah. And make sure while you're there, you stop off at a fucking cafe where you sit down on the chair and the chair's not level and and have a coffee there and sit and think about me and how I refuse to fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> just so dumb. Yeah, it's just that's the biggest issue I have with the movie is that they don't really explore with that relationship so yeah maybe he is but like it's such an like a juxtaposition like of who he was before where he would have jumped it a chance to like be intimate with like a pretty girl who pretty much like made it very known that she was game for like whatever that looked like and he's just like no i don't want to kind of thing she didn't even want the relationship type that he was after. Jamie, you asked me to pull that clip. Is there, do you want to play that one? Where they're talking about, like, you want me to go and marry someone like you, bitch, and go and get really annoyed about how they go and don't care about their children at the places. You know that one? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Play that clip, Tony. You want that clip? Yeah, I want that clip. Play it. I'm happy here. Well, you shouldn't be. Oh, you want to be more like the girls you know, do you? I'll go to London, marry somebody like Rupert. I believe he's taken. And ignore the fact that he's shagging his secretary within five years. And bitch your man at dinner parties, knowing he won't leave because he's scared of the alimony. And have sex once every six weeks and listen to him going on and on about how much he adores the children while doing nothing to actually take care of them. And have perfect hair that get this kind of pinched face through never saying what to actually mean and... Develop an insane Pilates habit and buy a dog or a horse and develop a crush on a riding instructor. And watch your husband take up jogging when he hits 40 and buy a Harley. And know that every day he goes into the office and looks at the young men and feels like somehow he got suckered. And leave him anyway and come back here to give the children a happy childhood. Whoa. See, that's the best part of the movie. Yeah, (laughs) she is so good. Like, she brings this whole movie to life. Yeah, exactly. And it's a it's a completely accurate indictment of the exact life that he fucking wishes that he had. Yeah. And then he yeah. ultimately kills himself over not being able to have. And she's yeah. totally spot on. Yeah. And within that yeah. criticism, what she's actually saying is that she's willing to, to be 
or to have more of a closer and meaningful relationship with him than he could ever have otherwise. Yeah. And like, he doesn't fucking hear that. Like, what is this movie's problem? Yeah. And he, he also, she also makes a point of like, you know, taking a jab at her current boyfriend too, with the running joke. It's like where he tells her, like, I don't want to take anything. She had it. She had exactly what she's describing in that scene that you just played. And she was like, yeah. now nah, I'm good. I don't want that. And like, she even tells him there, like, you're right. She's told him so many times about the movie. Like, I don't want that. And he's just like, well, I have to go kill myself now. That's what I want. And I can't have it either. So I'll kill myself instead. He's like, I wanted to go spelunking and I wanted to ice skate and I wanted <laughs> to, to skydive and I wanted to try MMA or something. I wanted to go on Joe Rogan and be an absolute bastard and I can't. So I'm going to fucking <laughs> bite the dust in Switzerland. You've clearly never been scuba diving in the Bahamas. <laughs> the movie still plays with your emotions. It's still a good movie in that sense. Like, the movie is pretty. It's it's well shot. Obviously, uh, Amelia Clark is fantastic in it. I couldn't care less about Will. We could, we could argue whether or not they could have hired a disabled person. Again, yep. He he didn't really add any... I mean, like, yeah, he was well-spoken and had a good British accent and really well-known how to pronounce his words and had good eloquence, but like beyond that, I didn't really care about him. This movie framed his character so stupidly that if they actually cast a real fucking wheelie to play that role, it would have been an insult to the wheelie. Like, <laughs> it might actually be the one movie where they couldn't cast it properly because no reasonable wheelie would have taken it. Yeah, then I, I, I don't mind being spoon-fed in public, and if I did, I wouldn't say it like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, like, that's the thing, though, is that, like, maybe they should have casted uh, someone who's disabled, or maybe they should have had him do a little bit more research into what that would look like to have a better understanding of, like, I can't say for sure. Like, maybe he did. We don't know what kind of research he did beforehand, but... Yeah, I agree. In some instances, he did a good job of portraying the struggles. But in other instances, I'm like, I don't think he really Yeah, I mean, my overall opinion is it was a good movie and it's worth a watch. But just don't watch it thinking that this is how we all think. That's a thing, though, too, is that I don't think we've even really touched on like, like some like I remember watching this movie and I remember like going on Facebook shortly after it left and like some people being very upset with the messages that this movie brings up about how disabled people should go and kill themselves after watching the movie, which I I can understand that some people might take that bad, but that the movie is not just, that's not the sole takeaway of the movie. I think personally, as we discussed, the sole takeaway is that he's kind of a pussy in the fact that he doesn't even really want to try to experience life. But He's boring and he's not even worth her time. Exactly. But yeah, you're right. Like I bet you there were some disabled people that saw this movie being like, oh, maybe I'm not aspiring to enough and that's why I'm happy. Well, no, I feel like they were offended. They were offended at how like disability was portrayed. Tony, you should apply to be casted in Me Before You too. Yeah. They're, they're, she actually wrote a second book. Oh, oh, yeah? And it's called like Me After You or something bullshit. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. You should ask to be cast, Tony, and maybe Amelia Clark will come and play your co-star. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. That's what I'm hoping. She just, like, realizes that she just wants to date a disabled person. Maybe she's a devotee. 
secretly at heart. There you go. We're like, we're not going to Switzerland, baby. I would never kill myself or get so disabled before that happens. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Any final words about, like, I feel like we, we covered it pretty well. I, ultimately, it's a good movie. It's worth a watch. People should watch it. But just don't think that this is a represent a representative movie of how life is or has to be or even should be if you're disabled. Like you can have healthy relationships and you should if you're gonna put your boobs near a wheelie, don't do it just because they're a wheelie. I don't know what that means. That's a great takeaway, Tony. <laughs> Do you have any other tips about what to do with boobs? Maybe we'll have to start an OnlyFans. I don't know. Oh, dear. Yeah, I should say, I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's a well-produced movie with very, very bad politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think, what I mean by good. Like, it's pretty. The acting is good for the most part. Uh, the the script could have used some uh, insight, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I feel like Amelia Clark was definitely uh, like a, a crutch in that movie for them, for sure. Yeah, that's true. Like, if they cast just some unknown or not as good of an actress, this movie probably would have been maybe just overlooked. I will say, though, like, it's definitely maybe not the best movie in terms of the portrayal of what, like, disability looks like or a relationship with a disabled person looks like. But I think it's definitely... I don't know. It, it, for me, anyway, it made me definitely think about like certain aspects of the movie that I was like, mm, I don't know if I agree with that or you know, it would have been nice to f- see a little bit more of what that would look like. Yeah. And it's not even like, it's not because like, I think we've all said it. None of us have a stance on euthanasia. It's just it, the script didn't make it a believable choice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I know you've listened to a couple episodes. We like to end our, our podcast with a game that we like to call. Wheelbreakers. And so <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, Wheelbreakers is a game of hypotheticals where we try to figure out how worth it being disabled can be. And when we have able-bodied guests on, it's always a little tricky because we we usually run under the assumption that we're already all disabled and how can we sweeten the deal to make us either choose to stay disabled or to choose able-bodied life. When we have able-bodied guests in the past, we've struggled. But I recently hung out with a past guest, Kyle Hanna, and he gave me an interesting way that we could potentially spin this game for able-bodied guests and in the future. And I want to try it out today. So usually what we do is we'll say, okay, either you get to be disabled or you get to be able-bodied, but with your able-bodied situation, there's some weird thing about you. And then you have to decide, is it worth that weird thing to be able-bodied or should I just stay with my not-that-bad disabled life? But what if we flip it where you get to be able-bodied Vanilla able-bodied, or you get to be disabled and, right? You get the new formula? Yeah, I get the formula. Here's my proposition. We've kind of alluded to it in this movie, so I think it's perfect. I'll start with you, Jamie, as an actual disabled person. You get to be able-bodied, 
or you continue to be disabled, but I give you unlimited money. Well, I don't know how I can spin this into something funny. I don't really give a fuck about money. So you don't think that you're, you don't think money would help you in any way? Well, of course it would. Like how much money? Like private jet money? Like fucking unlimited. Uh, unlimited Literally money? Unlimited. You own the printer. So then I could just like commission the R&D for an exoskeleton that I could wear. It could make me into Tony Stark. You sure could. Yeah, you could. Or or, or be able-bodied. But then if I had all the money in the world, I just end up being one of those rich billionaire jackasses that that is like tyrannical and terrible. You sure? Well, it seems to me that money tends to uh, render people evil. Well, you don't have to spend the money, I guess. Who's not going to spend the money? You could travel. You could do whatever traveling you want to do. You can make your your life as accessible as you need to. Essentially, if you ascribe to the philosophy that you're not disabled, it's your environment that, that's making you disabled, Ugh. then you can spend... I don't dislike that philosophy. Really? But you can... When you get to a flight of stairs, you feel disabled, but not because... It's because there's a flight of stairs. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. You can't change, like, I mean, yeah, you can change your environment, but you can't change people's minds. And it's people's minds that is the root of disability. We've talked about this many times. So I, I don't know, like, I suppose I could be, I could use the money for good and be a very powerful uh, uh, disabled advocate with a ton of money. So, you know, I, I'd go with the infinite wealth. Your your instinct was to not do it because you hate money? I just have never, money's never really improved my circumstance anyway. So I just, I, I have, I'm cynical toward it. You didn't sweeten the deal enough for him, Tony. That was the issue. You got to pick something. What if I, I give you those unlimited, no, I don't give you unlimited money. I just give you the ability to hook up with whoever you want. That's gross. Like for whatever reason. No, not, not like that. Like you decide I want to hook up with that person. And then they instantly want to hook up with you. That's also gross because they they because it's some cosmic force that's causing them to want to hook up with me. It's not earned. That's gross. I'll, I'll take the money and then you and I can spend it on doing good things together. I think I guess I'll spend money with you. Jamie's just a <laughs> tough person to please. He's just like I don't care about money and I don't. That's gross. I don't want. I don't want women throwing themselves at me for that reason. No way. You want to. They, what do you mean for the, that reason? He's implying that the women don't want him, that the only reason that they're after him is because of some weird cosmic wish that he made to become... Yeah, but it would be like the same as if you were just uber attractive and everyone liked you. I don't know. This whole thing is... The, the movie has soured his opinion on things. Jamie doesn't like money or sex. Figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I said it. Yeah, no. Like I'll I'll go with the money. You have a better uh, you have a better imagination than I do as far as uh, how to spend money. Oh, so you're gonna take the money and then get me to spend it for you? <laughs> yeah, I'll make you do all the work. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I actually don't mind money, and I enjoy sex. Justine. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that, Tony. Okay, I'm ready. You either get to stay your able-bodied self. The way that I am right now? The way that you are right now, yeah. Okay. Or you get to have my disability with the same deal. Uh, Unlimited money and you can have sex with whoever you want. 
I feel like this question is like a bit of a trap. Justine and I are friends enough to be like, I don't want your shit. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, never mind, never mind. Yeah, it wouldn't offend me if you were like, you're way too disabled for me to be happy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I found that very funny. Well, no, like Tony and I have talked about this like in the past or whatever, that like it would be hard for me to accept being put in that situation. But also I would I, I would uh, be intrigued to see what it what it would be like to actually live it through my own eyes, not just like seeing it like and hearing about it. But in your particular scenario that you had put in front of me, um, I would stay the way I am because I actually like my life. I, I love my job. I love my friends. Like there's nothing that I would change about it. So it would be more interesting to me if you had taken like something that I deeply cared about as an able-bodied person and then said, okay, well, you can be disabled and have this, this, this. But if you were able-bodied, you don't get to be this person that you have been. So yeah, yeah answer your question. I would, I would stay exactly who I am because kind of like what Jamie says, I don't really need infinite amount of money. I have what I need in terms of money. And I, I don't really feel the need to go hook up with a bunch of people right now. <laughs> you guys are boring. Sorry, Tony. It would be well. Funny. Maybe you need to be better at this, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be funny if you added more context. All right, Justine. I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to change it. Okay. So same deal for for the disabled person. But if you continue to be who you are for the rest of your life, you're always freezing cold. I love to be cold though. So like, bring it on. Yeah, that that's what like clothes are for. If I said super hot, would you take? I'm really trying to make you disabled here. <laughs> <laughs> super hot? Ooh, that would be hard because like I hate being hot. Okay, okay. Here we're getting somewhere. Starting to think about being in a wheelchair. Got it. So I either have to be I have to be either able bodied, but be extremely hot all the time. All the time. Yeah. And do I get like? to remain in air conditioning place or is that a, a no well yeah but it's never enough you're just hot oh so like it doesn't help i'm always hot it's, you're just like hot like you can have fans and air conditioners people are like why did, why are you so hot like it's it's like if you didn't know that this deal happened to you you would be like a medical mystery why you're so hot all the time or i can be disabled then do i do i still get infinite amount of money or am i just disabled but not hot yeah, get your facts straight, Tony. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out which one is going to make you take this ability. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you just the sex one because I know you don't really care about that. So, okay, so I can either be able-bodied and really hot or I can be disabled and just, like, begin late 24-7 is what you're saying? Yeah, still taking the heat. Mm. You know what? I may have to consider becoming disabled because if I'm that hot, I can't enjoy anything anyway. I think that, Jamie, we need to come up with one for Tony. I have one, but I'm not sure if it'll work. Okay, so, Tony, you get to be fully able-bodied, but every evening after dinner at 7 p.m., you call your disabled self in a parallel universe and explain to him in excruciating detail what you had for dinner. But it's myself, so I would be like, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> How was it? How did you cook it? What were the ingredients? Tell me the recipe. Because I like food and I like cooking, so I'd be like, okay, guess what we had tonight? I thought it would be painful for you because you always envy people for being able to eat. No. But you'd be like, 
as an able-bodied person, you'd be like torturing your disabled self. And so it wouldn't be, it would be, it'd be terrible. No, because I still eat and I still love food. So like, I still get emotionally erect thinking about like recipes and stuff. It's essentially like porn for himself. Like basically (laughs) weird ass porn as he's like describing in detail about. I'm like, oh, and then you put sesame seeds on top. Tell me more. How long did you put it in the oven for? I could just see him like describing like his disabled self being like, oh yeah. And tell me how, how, how it went down. How did it feel? (laughs) Was it saucy? (laughs) Did you find it too salty or did you think it was the right amount? Was the pasta al dente? Oh. How long did you boil the noodles for? <laughs> you can boil my noodle any day. <laughs> oh my God. Did you buy those lasagna noodles that are pre-baked? Or you bake them yourself. <laughs> so it's like your able-bodied uh, self keeps trying to get off the phone and you're just like keeping them on. I would start looking forward to it. I'd be like, I have to wait till seven. I'm not going early. <laughs> <laughs> I got plans tonight. I want to make sure I give them the whole story before I go out. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm actually taking that deal. Man, I wish that like that was actually real. I would thoroughly enjoy like <laughs> listening to those conversations nightly at seven o'clock. Just I should just start like a small podcast, just like a five minute a day where I just record what I had for dinner. <laughs> and then I baked the salmon in the oven for 14 minutes. Can you say it in a way like that where it kind of makes it sound almost weirdly sexual? I cut, slathered it in sauce, sprinkled some sesame seeds on them. You got yourself a poke bowl, baby. Do you really like sesame seeds or is that the only garnish you know? That's just what I had for dinner. Oh. Wow. Justine really does call you out, dude. It's great. <laughs> well, you know, I gotta make sure he stays cultured, you know? That's true. We were talking about this recently. I appreciate when my friends call me out because I think that a lot of my friends are like, he's had a hard enough life. He goes through enough. We shouldn't tell him when he's being weird about something. But you have no problem, and I really appreciate that about you. Well, thank you. And you know what? Before everyone gets the idea that I'm like, the main like able-bodied friend that just like rips on him all the time oh and that's all the time we have we're gonna have to no you're funny tony like (laughs) rips on me too like he has no problem calling me out if i've said something dumb or like like said something that's untrue is there a particular example that comes to mind justine in your elephant memory (laughs) no like i can't think of like there's lots no because it doesn't actually happen it does (laughs) it totally does he's totally called me on he's like what I think the only thing that comes to mind is that, like, I'll, like, go out with him in public to, like, say, like, a banquet or something. And I want to stay, like, you know, I want to be profesh, get my best foot forward, come off as, like, you know, a professional human being. And that goes out the window, like, five minutes in. As he's like, <laughs> it's like, what the hell? He says, this Justine is boring. He goes, we're not doing this or whatever. Five minutes in, we're, like, you know, freaking at the uh, auction table or whatever, posing with all the equipment that you're not supposed to do. <laughs> five minutes in you're pouring tequila salt down tony's mouth yeah like that's something that comes to mind as i try when i'm around other people like i don't want people just do i feel like would not understand our relationship if they saw it in person i would come off as 
either douchey or look at this able-bodied person taking advantage of this poor disabled person. Actually, I have a good example now that I think of it, Jamie. Once we were at South Keys and we were walking to the theater and Tony told me that I was too slow and he goes, we are going to miss the movie if you don't move faster. Like, what the hell? And he pretty much told me that if we wanted to get to the movies on time, that I would have to like ride on the back of his chair. We were never getting there in t- on time. Smooth, Tony. I did. But like, as you know, I just, I have to wonder, like, what were people thinking? They probably thought, who is this girl like taking advantage of like this poor person in a wheelchair has to like drive this woman around on her chair on the chair like she can she not walk on her own or something like i don't think i think people are like damn they cracked the system tony and i invented our own sport once did he ever tell you jamie no we did we uh invented extreme like uh office chair racing where <laughs> like basically it involves uh myself or any it, it really is any able person to basically um sit in a office chair with wheels and be pulled around from someone on the power chair and we did this a lot well we like ripped down the tunnels yeah what in an office chair yeah it was at some points very dangerous i probably looking back probably wouldn't have done it if i wasn't so intoxicated we went down cardiac hill because how dumb are we oh my (laughs) god that's death what the fuck is wrong with you guys we can maybe maybe this is incriminating, but none of us go there anymore. But we would go into the like the storage unit and take like a wheelchair and then just like grip that wheelchair down like a hill. How did you get access to the storage unit? Obviously, Justine had keys. Obviously, like you like stole it out of Deb's pocket or something. <laughs> no, like in the uh, in the storage area on the first floor of Leeds, I'd go take the ones uh, that we kept, you know, on spare just in case like someone's chair broke down. We needed uh, like a manual. Yeah, the chairs that would always go missing during uh, Disability Awareness Week because the drunk kids wouldn't bring them back from residence. We were part of the problem, but we always returned it after we used it. <laughs> we were part of the problem. But yeah, we, uh, we we did that a lot, trying to be like creative. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes Tony would try to whip me around the corners really fast to see what would happen. But I'm not good at it. <laughs> You're all proud and shit. This is like not a sport that the lighthearted should try. And you should also... You know, be very careful about who's driving you around. The only time I ever got injured was never riding on the back of Tony's chair. I attempted this game with someone else that was dragging me around. And within five seconds of hanging on to his chair, I like face planted into like the wall. And I'm like on the floor. Like I'm literally on the floor. I like just hit my head and I'm like, oh, Tony wheels up to me and he looks down at me and he goes, well, that wasn't very bright. Or he said something stupid. Like, that's really dumb. Like, no wonder you're hurt. Oh, it's your first day, (laughs) yeah? And he pretty much just judged me. Didn't ask me if I was okay, just judged me and said, well, that's why you shouldn't have done that. I mean, I feel like I warned you before it happened, and then I I just got in my I told you so moment. So, why I was so proud, because I knew how good I was at this, too. To be fair, looking back, probably wasn't the best decision, but I was like, no, 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 it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And then it was not. Oh, man. Carlton Attend Services, I tell you. Yeah. Justin, we have so many stories. There's not enough podcasts to delve into that. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, we'll probably have to start 
wrapping it up, but I uh, I would love if you would come on again. We can watch another movie or talk about some other media and tell some more stories. Your storytelling is so fun because, uh, like Jamie said, you have an elephant memory and your your ability to remember little details. You've always had a knack for storytelling. You know, you you kind of you've always had like the the writer mentality in you. And that always comes through when you're telling a good story. But I mean, you're also super into movies and stuff, which is good. And your your background is perfect for this. And obviously, you're a great guest. And I, I just want to say, like, thank you for coming along. It was super fun having you on. Come on again. I hope you had a good time. But I do hope you come on again and share some more. I had a great time. And once again, I forgot that we were recording, which felt the three of us were just like demolishing this movie and like riffing it apart. I'd be surprised if anyone watches this movie after we just like basically was like, yeah, this movie's terrible. <laughs> My hope was to tear it a couple new assholes. And I think we did that. So yeah, oh, yeah we, we totally did. And uh, yeah, if I'm given the opportunity next time, to go on uh tony i'll i'll wear a special shirt for you remember the shirt that you got me just so that you know as a reminder that i remember everything i see this is why i become i don't remember this shirt <laughs> you, they, yeah tony got me the greatest shirt for my, my birthday it was like the perfect basically gift to give someone that was me it basically was just a regular shirt and on it it says be careful or you're at, you'll end up in my novel <laughs> that's awesome I thought it was just going to be a shirt that had Tony written across the chest. No, he hasn't. <laughs> he hasn't gotten me a gift like that. Well, thank you for being such a good friend, being such a good guest, being just uh-huh. yeah. I I had a great time, and we've had so many great memories over the years. So I appreciate our friendship a lot, and I appreciate you coming out here to do this. Well, like I said, I'm happy to be here. It was fun. And I look forward to, I won't watch this episode probably, but I enjoy (laughs) watching, I'll enjoy, keep watching the rest of your episodes. Well, thank you so much and take care, everyone. Stay disabled. Yep. Thanks, Justine.